Hello and welcome to the Beyond Biotech podcast number 82. I'm Jim Cornell and this is the weekly podcast from the Biotech. This week, Fran Gregory, Vice President of Emerging Therapies at Cardinal Health, will tell us not only about the company, but also its annual biosimilars report and attending Advanced Therapies Week in Miami Beach, Florida last month. Could you tell me a little bit about Cardinal Health and what you do there? Yeah, sure. Cardinal Health is a healthcare company that is known for distribution of pharmaceuticals as well as a global manufacturer and distributor of medical and laboratory products. And in addition to those really distribution services that we provide, we also are a provider of performance and data solutions for healthcare facilities. So we really offer healthcare providers and facilities solutions to help make their practices more efficient and effective. We view ourselves as a crucial link between the clinical and the operational sides of healthcare, and we work to deliver end-to-end solutions to the healthcare providers that we serve, as well as our pharmaceutical manufacturers. Cardinal Health has been in business for over 50 years. We have almost 50,000 employees now, and we really seize the opportunity to continue to learn and grow every day in the healthcare space. My role at Cardinal Health is to oversee a combination of functions within our specialty solutions segment, which we call Emerging Therapies. So my organization, Emerging Therapies, we consider kind of two areas to be emerging therapies, one being the biosimilar segment, which have only been on the market since 2015. So biosimilars are you know, emerging to the market. They're still relatively new. They've been around for less than 10 years. And then the second area of emerging therapies that I'm responsible for is our cell and gene therapy center of excellence. So this is known as advanced therapy solutions. The first cell and gene therapy, it was actually cell therapy, to launch in the world and in the U.S. was in 2017. So again, less than 10 years ago. So both of these areas are really important to cardinal health and to the pharmaceutical industry and uh, obviously most importantly to patients. When you talk about those emerging therapies and the the things that you do, does that mean that you produce those? That's a great question. We do not actually manufacture pharmaceuticals in the cell and gene therapy space currently. But what we do is really we provide end-to-end resources for the manufacturers that we work with and the provider sites that we service. So it's really, um, you know, from the beginning when we're looking at manufacturers that have pipeline products that they're researching, we have a regulatory team that works with that part of their organization to really help consult on FDA meetings, BLA filings, anything from their phase one, two, three clinical development programs. We really can provide consultant services to help get that product through to commercialization. Once that product is commercialized, that's really where we are involved again in distribution and logistics and financial risk management and in really making sure that product gets to the right patient at the right time. With these products being extremely critically uh, volatile um, temperature-wise, some of them require temperature storage down to negative 190 degrees Celsius, and they're they're volatile as far as their time of stability or their you know the duration of time that they can be left at any given temperature. So they need to get to the treatment center on time, to the right place, and to the right patient. 
with a level of precision that I've I've never seen before in the world of pharmacy. So we work a lot with providers and manufacturers for logistics. And then finally, we also have reimbursement support programs, as well as travel and lodging kind of logistics support programs for the patients themselves. And then finally, we work a lot with manufacturers and providers on real-world evidence studies. We have actually the largest real-world evidence study in progress. Uh, We're following approximately 500 patients in the largest CAR-T cell therapy real-world evidence study that exists. So we're not only involved in a a small piece of this process, we're really involved end-to-end. And, you know, one of the things that we're developing right now with a number of organizations is really creating that value story around cell and gene therapy products. How do we show not only the real world evidence, but the total cost of care and the pharmacoeconomic value of these products and really framing that up in new ways for payers and even for government payers as well. It was uh, interesting when you mentioned about the fact that you've got staff in many different countries and also things like temperature issues must be kind of not difficult, but there must be challenges involved with just the logistics. Absolutely. Yes, that's something that we take into consideration every day um, at Cardinal Health, not only for our cell and gene products, but many specialty products require temperature controlled environments. Cell and gene are kind of like ultra sensitive, I would say. So we definitely are um, keeping a much closer watch on them. They require a much higher level of information, chain of custody, chain of identity types of things that need to occur with cell and gene therapy products. So we know exactly where they are, who has custody of them at what time throughout the process. So absolutely many resources go into making sure that those high cost products get to the right patient at the right time and at the right temperature and that the product is stable when delivered. How important is innovation to Cardinal Health? Cardinal Health is extremely committed to innovation. Um, Being that we've been in business for over 50 years and we are still one of the industry leaders in providing pharmaceutical distribution services and manufacturing and distribution for medical products, I think you have to be innovative. I think some of the areas where we're showing that we are, you know, continuing to innovate is in the cell and gene therapy space. We are absolutely working to lead the market here. And really, you know, we call ourselves the innovation partner for our pharmaceutical manufacturers. So we really want to continue to find new solutions to new challenges that are presented to the healthcare system every day, not only in cell and gene, but very broadly across healthcare How can we work with our partners, whether those be pharmaceutical manufacturers or our provider networks? How can we continue to innovate with you to make the system better, to make the system more efficient, more effective, and um, most importantly, to make sure that patients get the care that they need every day? One of the things that I noted from the strategy that you have is lowering healthcare costs to improve access to life-saving medication. How do you work toward achieving that? Sure. This is one of my favorite areas. Honestly, this is where I feel very passionate, you know, having a long road of uh, experience and interest in kind of the financials of healthcare. I really do feel like there is a need for some kind of a break, you know, to the healthcare system. We, We can't keep spending at the rate that we are. And I think, you know, we all hear very frequently that the U.S. healthcare system at the rate that we're going is somewhat, if not completely unsustainable. 
So if you look at, you know, kind of just some numbers, I'll, I'll rattle off some numbers here. And these numbers are important to the work that I do every single day at Cardinal Health. We hear all the time the spend on biologics is increasing at uh, an exponential rate. In 2022, the U.S. spent $252 billion on biologics alone, which represents almost half of all pharmaceutical spending. So we hear these stats all the time. It's half of all pharmaceutical spending is going towards these biologic products, but it only accounts for about 2 to 3% of the total prescriptions that are written. So if you think about that, that's a huge number and it's growing every year. Then the flip side of that is think about biosimilars. So biosimilars are in the market. They're here to stay. The purpose of biosimilars is to lower healthcare costs on biosimilars and improve access. So biosimilars are expected to save the healthcare system over $180 billion through 2027. So remember that number. Through 2027, biosimilars are supposed to save the healthcare system $180 billion. So the current cost of biosimilars are totally living up to these expectations. I think when biosimilars first came to market, some of the earlier biosimilars did not reflect huge price discounts off of the reference products. However, in the past year, even in the past six months, we have seen some extremely convincing cost discounts off of reference product prices in the adalumumab space. So the some of the most recent biosimilars that have launched have actually exceeded 85% off of the price of the reference product. So huge discounts that are extremely meaningful not only to the healthcare system, but ultimately to improving access and creating a more sustainable environment for pharmaceuticals moving forward. So kind of flip that and look at the extremely expensive, innovative products. If you think about the cell and gene therapy products that we just talked about a little bit, from 2024 to 2027, Cell and gene therapies will have cost the system, the healthcare system in the U.S. only, and again, we're talking about the U.S. here, around $70 billion. So $27 billion of that will occur in 2027 alone. So these are conservative estimates, um, assuming that products do get approved as we expect them to get approved and that, that the FDA indeed holds up their commitment to approving 10 to 20 cell and gene therapies per year over the next couple of years. We expect to see 70 billion in spend on cell and gene therapies through 2027. And remember that number of savings for biosimilars, 180 billion through 2027 in savings. So when I hear concerns about the costs of cell and gene therapies and concerns over the sustainability of the healthcare system because of cell and gene therapy products, You know, my messaging is and my thoughts are that if we could, as a country and as a global community, improve the uptake and optimize the uptake and the utilization of biosimilars, that savings alone could fund the innovative products that are coming to market in the cell and gene therapy space and any other innovative products that might come to light with the amazing research that's being done right now in medicine. So if you think about just the financials and kind of the numbers, I know this is way simpler math than an actuary or an economist might put together. But if you just think about some of the savings opportunities that we have right in front of us with biosimilars that are happening now, 
And if we all work together to optimize those, we can really create this kind of financial space for this innovation to occur. So I think that's why um, my role at Cardinal Health is much different than anyone else. I think I have the coolest job because I get to see some significant savings coming out on one side of the healthcare system and some huge costs coming as well. And really being able to balance that from a financial perspective with what's happening in healthcare. Because you're a global company, every country has its own rules, regulations. It must be tough to keep on top of that, but also useful for your clients that you have a finger on that pulse. Absolutely. It's really important for us to know exactly what's happening in the industry. And, you know, again, my focus is on biosimilars and cell and gene therapy products. But that doesn't mean that, you know, as a pharmacist, I don't want to know about every single new technology or innovation that's happening in medicine. There's some fascinating things going on outside of my areas of expertise currently that certainly have a huge impact on global health care costs and global health care um, outcomes. Speaking of innovation, how do you, and I don't necessarily mean you personally, but the company, how do you stay in touch with what's new in drug discovery and do you get involved in that? Yeah, that's that's one of the areas that is extremely important in, I think, our line of work and probably everyone's line of work is knowing kind of what's coming in the future and making sure that we are prepared and that we're proactive in everything that we're doing. We're really building for the future. So I'll speak to that specific to my areas of expertise being biosimilars and cell and gene. If I think about, you know, how do we stay up to speed in innovation and development, drug discovery in the biosimilar space, it's much different from what we do in the cell and gene therapy space. So I'll kind of walk through those. For biosimilars, there are a lot of knowns. With biosimilars, we know Typically, we know launch dates. We know when patents are going to expire with some ambiguity that surrounds that, of course. But we have some information regarding patent expiry and we have some idea of what types of patents would be upheld versus what types of patents might not on certain reference products. For biosimilars, we are really tracking less clinical development and more patent expiration, more litigation outcomes. We are tracking what happens in patent dance processes. We are tracking what's happening in any settlements that are occurring between organizations for launch dates. And of course, we're tracking the FDA approvals. I'd say out of all of those, the most difficult one to track is the litigation. So we hear, you know, publicly the results of some of the trials that go on between manufacturers of biosimilars and reference products. However, it takes a little bit of digging into some resources that some expert resources that we have access to to be able to really understand what's going on in some of these very complex cases. So it's interesting when you think about biosimilar development, the actual development program for a biosimilar being primarily analytical and not as much on the clinical development and clinical trial space, we really aren't tracking that so much as we're tracking the 
political environment surrounding the biosimilar. So that's kind of how we stay, you know, up to speed on biosimilar development. Of course, we work with these manufacturers every day to ensure that we're ready for their product when it comes to market. We're ready to contract for their products so that providers can have instantaneous access to their products when they're available commercially. So that's part of what we do every day as well. Um, but that tracking before the commercial um, availability is probably the the more complex part of what we do most days. So setting biosimilars aside for a moment and moving into the cell and gene therapy side, this is a completely different world. So cell and gene therapy development is extremely new. Every pharmaceutical manufacturer that is developing a cell or gene therapy is doing something a little bit different. There is new science being discussed every day, new technology platforms, new cell therapy development capabilities. So we are really tracking these in a completely different way. Most of the way that we track our cell and gene therapy are, you know, obviously news outlets specific to cell and gene therapy. There are a number of podcasts out there that are specific to cell and gene therapy where certain developers are being interviewed. So those are extremely helpful to stay up on on what are the new manufacturing techniques that are being discussed? What is the new technology from a scientific perspective that is being evaluated? What sounds promising? And let's follow that. So we do follow the pipeline very closely. We have a very analytical pipeline process that we track companies and molecules that we think look promising and we follow those through every single step of the development pathway. Oftentimes our regulatory consulting part of our organization is getting involved with those companies earlier and actually working with them to help them get that product through to commercialization. So we're tracking them from an even closer perspective in the case where we're partnering with them on regulatory consulting. We also attend many conferences and industry events. Those are very helpful just to maintain relationships with the organizations that are developing these products, making sure that we know where they are and if they need our consulting guidance, any of the services or products that we provide, we're working close with them to provide those. And then the interesting area in this space is investor activity. So many of these small companies that are developing, you know, maybe one or two cell or gene therapy products, a lot of these are smaller companies that are very scientific in nature. So following the investment activity that is happening around these organizations can also be an early indicator of how these products might fare in the long term. We also uh, pay close attention to any FDA advisory board meetings, making sure that we know what the outcomes of those meetings were. And again, how that looks as we compare it to the molecule and what we know about the molecule and the science involved. And then finally, global approvals. Sometimes we look at global approvals and that implies that other countries will be following. Um, Most of the time a product is not only approved in one country, but we can kind of see if it's approved in one area or region, anticipating where it might be approved next. So kind of tracking it that way as well. So we are involved very early with these manufacturers. Most of these small manufacturers, we know them well. We talk to them often. Um, They need a lot of resources due to the fact that many of them are small. And again, we want to innovate. We are their innovation partners and we will be there to innovate with them and help them fill what gaps they might have along the development life cycle. 
you mentioned the biosimilars and you produce a report every year. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, sure, we do. Um, this is one of our um, most exciting, I think, publications that we do, especially in the biosimilar space. There's a lot of change that happens very quickly in the biosimilar space. And the biosimilars report attempts to capture not only what's happening currently, but what we think the big trends will be in the year to come. So this will be our third annual biosimilars report. We will be releasing that here in the next few weeks. We really use this report as a service to help educate the broader healthcare and, and really the general public about biosimilars. Every year we select topics of interest to clinicians and others which are timely and relevant to the market. I think what's unique about our biosimilars report, um, I know there are a couple of other biosimilars reports out there that I, I find very valuable as well, but I think where ours is different is that we not only provide um, analytics and reporting on what is happening currently. So this year, for example, we'll provide some analytics and some insights regarding the adalumumab market, how it's developing so far, as well as some of the formulary impacts on biosimilars. So those are kind of report outs, they're database, they're insights driven. But we also um, uniquely, we interview healthcare experts in different areas of emerging biosimilars. So if we look to the future and the pipeline of biosimilars, we, we will select a few therapeutic categories where we see being kind of hot, topics for biosimilars in the in the coming year and we will interview experts in those areas and create um, create surveys and data um, as a result of those interviews so that the reader can have a really good understanding of how healthcare providers are thinking about their products it's a blend of scientific information of data and insights, as well as kind of hot topics and what you need to know about biosimilars going into the coming year. I know it's kind of impossible to summarize the entire industry, but what are you seeing as the current cell and gene therapy space? Yeah, so I think one of the one of the most important things to understand is in cell and gene therapy, you know, we kind of say cell and gene therapy as one thing, but it's actually multiple different things. So when we think about cell therapy, we have a couple of different types of cell therapy. Autologous is when the person's own cells are used as a product uh, to manufacture the treatment. And then allogeneic, which is where a donor's cells are used to generate a product or a treatment. And then gene therapies are a little bit different. They're not actually using just the cells, but they're using the cells and the genetic material within the cells to modify the genetic material within the cells in some way. So cell and gene therapies are definitely kind of combined together because they are very, sometimes there are cell and gene therapies in one product, uh, the genetic material and the cell therapy is uh, kind of combined. So that's why we talk about them together because they both have come to market at the same time. They both are using human cells and genetic material to, as an input to manufacturing a treatment for a patient. So it's definitely new science, new innovation, and very quickly evolving. So if if I think about, you know, another key point of the cell and gene therapy market right now, 
I mentioned previously, the first product was approved in 2017. I think there are about 20 cell and gene therapy products on the market today. And I think I say about 20 because the FDA categorizes cell and gene therapies a little bit differently than what most commercial organizations categorize cell and gene therapies. So when we look at cell and gene therapies, we're talking about treatments that Cardinal could potentially be a partner of the manufacturer. And it's almost a more, you know, I hate to say traditional medication, but it's a treatment that goes through a pathway that Cardinal Health finds complementary to the services that we provide. Right now, among those 20 cell and gene therapy products that are approved and commercially available on the market, there are a number of different indications. I think one of the misnomers that some people might have in the cell and gene therapy space is that cell and gene therapies are for oncology conditions or for cancer. That is true in some cases. Many of these products are indeed for different types of cancer indications. However, we also have several treatments available on the market that are for conditions like hemophilia. Sickle cell disease is a very popular one. There were two products recently approved in December for sickle cell disease. And we also have um, extremely rare diseases being treated outside of the hematology or oncology sector with some of these new gene therapy products. So the treatment paradigm is extremely broad and the types of providers that are involved in providing these types of therapies to patients is broad and becoming more broad as we speak. So I think that's really exciting. I think the most exciting part is that patients who have never had any option for any kind of relief from their disease are finally having hope. So I think that's the most exciting part of this science and this technology. If we look at the future of cell and gene therapy products, I think we are barely touching the tip of the iceberg with what we have on the market currently. Most of the cell therapies we have on the market today are autologous, again, meaning they they require the individual to donate cells to create the dose of medication, and these are done one at a time. So one patient at a time receives their medication, and it's manufactured for one patient at a time. I think when you consider this being sustainable, it's difficult to think about how that is a sustainable process long term. So when we look at the allogeneic cell therapy products, I've you know heard numbers um, that are extremely exciting that one donor patient could potentially create a batch of cell therapy treatments for over 100 patients or more. So I think this is where the future really is when we look at cell therapy and gene therapy is being able to create higher volumes of products with fewer patient donors needed. So I think that's really where the market is headed and really exciting to hear about that. You know, when we attend conferences and other events, hearing what the technology and the pipeline is and the excitement surrounding that is definitely very, very encouraging as we think about the future for these products. I think not only will that science evolve kind of into that allogeneic space and the gene therapy space, we'll also see, I think in the pipeline, we're thinking we will see a lot more, you know, innovation in manufacturing as well. Are there any advances in the field recently that you've looked at and thought that it looks really exciting? I think the big advances that I am seeing in the field, again, kind of go back to what I just mentioned in the technology type, but then also I think the manufacturing of these products 
is an area where standardization is being kind of evaluated. How do we create more standardized processes to manufacture higher volumes of these products in a shorter period of time? So I think that will continue to be something where we see advances moving very quickly. Many of the conferences that I have attended recently are focused on standardization of manufacturing and creating efficiencies in the manufacturing processes. So I think between that, a combination of new science and technology and the type of product that's being created, autologous to allogeneic, seeing more allogeneic, larger volumes being capable with that. And then for the gene therapy products, creating, uh, I don't want to say easier ways to manipulate the uh, genome, but some of the technology that has been talked about recently really does feel like it could be extremely applicable to many, many therapeutic areas and could expand very broadly just based on the way that the technology actually works. So I think, you know, the science, the technology and the manufacturing is where we're really going to continue to see very quick advancements and development as we look to the future with cell and gene therapy products. I guess one other thing I, I would say would be the payment models. So one of the things that we hear a lot about with these products are about the cost, but the cost of a typical cell or gene therapy product, I think the average is around $1 million currently, but the range is very broad. So an autologous cell therapy might cost anywhere from, you know, four to $600,000 plus or minus. And a gene therapy could cost anywhere from $1 million up to $3.5 million. And keep in mind, this is for one dose for one patient. And I think that fact alone creates challenges in this space. And this is where a lot of these innovations will occur in payment models and also in the availability of pharmacoeconomic models that show the value of these products very clearly, not only today, but over time. So I think that's an area where a lot of quick action will probably happen over the next couple of years. You mentioned how important events are to what you do, and I know that you attended Advanced Therapies Week recently. I wonder if you could kind of give me a quick recap or your impressions of the event and whether there were any notable presentations or advances. Yeah, Advanced Therapies Week was a really great conference. It was my first time attending this year a few weeks ago. You know, the messaging of the event is that this this Advanced Therapy Week's conference is to help biotechs progress on their commercialization journey and pushing the industry one step closer to delivering life-changing treatments to patients, which I saw that on their website. And I said, yep, that pretty much sums it up. That's a great way to say it. It was held in Miami, Florida. There were a couple thousand attendees and there were some great educational sessions and a really good number of exhibitors there as well. Some of the key takeaways, in my opinion, were number one, I think the need for standardization was very clear, not only in the talk tracks that were included in the presentation sessions, but even in the discussions and networking sessions and in some of the meetings that I had, we really talked a lot throughout the week about the need for standardization versus that custom approach, one patient for one manufacturer for one drug at a time really standardizing the process so that there's more scalability and not only scalability in the manufacturer, but also on the provider and the patient experience side. So really a lot of discussion about 
how do we make this process scalable for healthcare providers? Many of the manufacturers have limited their provider networks to a specific network. So that may include 10 hospitals, it may include 500, but there's a very specific network of providers that have access to administer this product to a patient. So really creating standardization and scalability within that process and making these products more accessible to patients locally. So there was a lot of discussion about that. And then the second thing I think if I had to kind of group themes would be the value and access theme. So really, again, going back to thinking about how these products could potentially cost $3 million in one day versus, you know, for a hemophilia patient, for example, those costs are spread across a lifetime. And really, how do we clearly show the value of a product that although it might cost millions of dollars on one day, it reduces total cost of care long term and it drastically improves that patient's quality of life and even duration of life and other factors that are not quantifiable in dollars. So I think that was a big source of discussion as well. There were talk tracks developed to address these topics, which were very interesting. One of the stats that I heard that was very sad was that only two out of 10 eligible U.S. patients actually receive a CAR-T cell therapy, even if they have a need for it and their indication matches that product's indication. So, you know, I think the goal for all of us is to make that number 10 out of 10 eligible patients receive the therapy that they need. So I heard a lot about how do we make that happen as an industry working together to get these products to patients. So that those were kind of the key themes. Are there any other trends that you think we may be able to look forward to in 2024? Not putting the pressure on you to have a crystal ball or anything. <laughs> yes, I, I do think that, um, you know, 2024 will fly by just like every year does. You know, we were predicting what was going to happen in 2023 just yesterday, it seemed. Things change very quickly, yet, yet they change slowly. So, you know, some of these things would be the same things probably that I said last year but um, still extremely important. And we're going to keep on talking about them until we figure them out. And, and we do see progress in figuring some of these things out. So I think number one would be the continued push on efficiency, manufacturing improvements, and making sure that we get the technology to a place where it's scalable. That will result in my number two, which would be the lowering of prices. So Right now, I'm addressing trends in cell and gene therapy. I'll talk about biosimilars in one second. So number two is lowering prices. So again, that efficiency and scalability will result in lowered prices. I think that that absolutely has to happen in this space. Then the third thing would be we talked about value and access, creating much more clear pharmacoeconomic messages that demonstrate the value, the financial and the clinical value of these products long term and short term. And then the last thing that I think is probably the most exciting thing is the richness of the pipeline in cell and gene therapy. So I think we'll keep on seeing really amazing innovations come into the pipeline. We're monitoring that pipeline very closely. We monitor the pipeline from preclinical all the way through phase three and approval. So we can kind of see that science as it comes into the pipeline. And I think we'll continue to see a really, really rich pipeline in cell and gene therapies and more indications being added to treat more common conditions. Right now we see that pipeline 
being more and more prevalent in conditions that affect many people, like cardiovascular. We see some neurology indications, even, you know, blindness and deafness types of indications. So really exciting things coming in the pipeline. So I think we'll continue to see that. And then for biosimilars, what I think we will see in 2024 is kind of a continued push on some of the political challenges that we see in the biosimilar space. Some of the pricing challenges that we see with formulary placements and interchangeability, I think we'll continue to hear those as kind of buzzwords. How do we make this industry more efficient as well so that we can really optimize those savings? So I think we'll continue to see a political environment. And again, the pipeline for biosimilars is extremely rich. We're seeing products being approved in new therapeutic areas. Uh, multiple sclerosis, some rare disease conditions, more oncology products, which is great, and um, immunology will continue. We're also seeing a big boom in the retina space. So really exciting things happening in biosimilars too. Some great and wide-ranging information for us there on Biosimilars and Advanced Therapies Week. Don't forget to check out the latest news and articles at labiotech.eu. And I hope wherever in the world you are, you have a great week ahead. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for another Beyond Biotech. <music>